welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What do they get right? What do they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah Ifstecker, a medieval historian, and today I'm joined once again by Media, Media Evil's resident Doctor Who expert, Lily Bonneman, to talk about Doctor Who audio drama, The Church and the Crown. So, Lily, welcome back. It's good to be back. I'm always happy to be here. Always happy to have you. So why don't you tell the listeners, in case this happens to be their very first episode, uh, (laughs) who you are and why you wanted to talk about this particular piece of media. Well, if this is your first episode, you've made an interesting choice. Um, Apparently, my my biggest marketable skill in the world is that I watch a lot of Doctor Who. Um, <laughs> I am a student of medieval history. It will be my college major when I can afford to go back. A few years ago, like 2020-ish, I was talking to Sarah and I found out that she had never seen Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. And of course, Doctor Who is a time travel show, so they go back to the fairly broad period that Sarah defines as medieval uh, (laughs) quite often. Uh, And so we've started watching Doctor Who and listening to Doctor Who audio dramas. And this is our eighth. Every once in a while I watch other things too, like Willow, but mostly it's this. (laughs) Yeah, uh, I will say I was sad to hear that the uh, the show will not be returning for season I know. two. I was curious what was going to happen with it. I uh, it wasn't the best show, but I thought it had potential, and I wanted to see it how it went. But yeah, I I liked it less than you did, but still, I was you know I thought the characters at least had some potential, and was curious to see what they ended up doing. So yeah, yeah it's too bad. Yep. Yeah. Well, today is an example of my unduly wide definition (laughs) of the Middle Ages, which I have adopted for the purpose of this podcast, which might also reflect the fact that I teach in a department where I am the only person who covers anything before the year like 1900. So, (laughs) (laughs) but anyway, Today, we are going to be talking about Doctor Who 2002 audio drama, The Church and the Crown, which, as we will be getting into, is essentially Doctor Who's Three Musketeers-inspired piece. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's 17th century France. We've got King Louis XIII, Cardinal Richelieu. We've got musketeers. we got Cardinal's Guards. we got all the tropes, but, like, not the same story that you yeah think you know um, and that i have already covered twice twice I think just twice yep <laughs> i went back and listened to them in preparation for this there's only oh, two good. i wonder what i said i don't remember because those episodes um, are from a while ago and i did not listen back to them <laughs> a long time ago well you liked the 1993 one and you hated the one with the airships i do remember that (laughs) 
We have Peter Davison as the fifth doctor, Nicola Bryant as Harry Brown, and also playing the role of Queen Anne, since it will be a part of the plot that they, in fact, are like precise doppelgangers for one another. There's actually a fun behind the scenes reason for why they did that. Nicola Bryant is English, but the character of Perpagillium Brown which is her name. (laughs) Mm -hmm. She's a botany student from 1984 Baltimore, Maryland. Oh, near my old home. Yeah, so for most of this, so like for almost all of her Doctor Who appearances, like Nicola Bryant is attempting an American accent. Um, I... I will say uh, she's doing, she does better in the audio dramas than she did when she was on the televised show in the mid eighties. Because in the, in those days it was bad. It was mm, quite bad. (laughs) But make casting her as queen Anne gives her, her one and only time in the, in, in her, uh, appearances in Doctor Who to use her actual accent. Hmm. It's funny because she has an English accent and she's playing the Queen of France who was named Anne of Austria but who was from Spain. Yep. <laughs> All makes sense. Yep. Everybody foreign is British, in fact. Yeah, pretty much. Except for Perry. <laughs> Except for Perry. We also have Caroline Morris as Aramem. And for once, I actually know the backstory of uh, this particular companion since uh, you and I listened to this audio drama when you visited me. And yes. so, yeah, she is this like ancient Egyptian princess, basically. Yep. Like Aramem Mushin Teparem, who, who hails from 1402 BC. Yes. So she she has gone, she has in fact gone forward in time from her mm-hmm. perspective. She's she's very impressed by quite a few of the modern amenities of, of 17th century Paris. Like, <laughs> why is there glass where a window should be? <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, it's a good question. Yeah. We also have Andrew McKay playing both King Louis and the beggar blind Maurice. We have Michael Shallard as Cardinal Richelieu and Marcus Hutton as the Duke of Buckingham, who is the uh, the villain of the piece. Yes. I'll have more to say about the buck later. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot to say about the buck. <laughs> yes. And and this is one of the Doctor Who episodes, I will say, that is, uh, that is alien-free, uh, that the only supernatural or sci-fi elements are the you know the doctor and his crew themselves yeah it's it and and pure historical stories are rare i mean in the show itself it was a it was a common plot device back when the first doctor was around but after he regenerated they dropped it almost immediately because the first doctor was the kind of character who's like okay we're here to observe do not meddle history will go how it goes we are not here to meddle many of all and then he evolves regenerates into the second doctor and the second doctor is much more the meddling type 
And so the writers realized, oh, we can't really do pure historical episodes with this guy because he'll just try to quote unquote fix things and that doesn't work. So we have to have aliens be the problem that he's dealing with. Right. Whereas here, Um, as as it will turn out, the Duke of Buckingham is the problem. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That he just, he just can't uh, sit down and do what he is supposed to be doing, historically speaking. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. That then should uh, get us into the enumeratio, or recap, where we will talk through the events of this audio drama. So we are in Paris 1626. We've got a, a duel that uh, the there's a fight that breaks out between the King's Musketeers and the guards of Cardinal Richelieu over the fact that one of the guards of Cardinal Richelieu has impugned the honor of Queen Anne. And basically, I think just like imply that she's a slut, right? Yep. Yep. Yes. Our, our Musketeers are Patrice Delmar and uh, Francois Ruffet. And the Cardinal's guard in question is Guard Captain Moran. And they are the characters that we will be hanging out with for the rest of the serial because it's the it's the audio dramas and they don't want to hire more actors than they have to. <laughs> yes. Yes. So that is, you know, starts us off with, uh, you know, what's going on in Paris at this particular moment in 1626. And then we see what's going on with the doctor. So he has promised to take Aramem to, where is he taking her exactly? I can't remember. The Braxiatel Collection, which is, which is a, a location that gets referenced every now and again. It's this intergalactic art collection uh, that, okay. is, that is uh, run by an eccentric time lord known as Irving Braxiatel who in other works it is hinted that he is in fact the doctor's brother but it's complicated but we never actually get to meet Brax in this uh he's in a lot of other stuff though uh regardless I just really like the idea that there's one time lord who's just like fuck it I'm an art collector now yep I mean Brax also has a lot of other stuff going on but Later on, the seventh doctor has a companion. She's an archaeologist named Bernice Summerfield. And when she leaves the doctor, she does end up going to essentially live with Brax at his big art collection. Hmm. He's he's her. Awesome. She's his on-staff archaeologist. Nice. That sounds like a great job, honestly. Yeah. Hmm. So he's trying to take her there. Uh, I believe it's the the Fulton part of the the meddling cat uh, that yes. Aram has brought with her, which you know I I find very relatable as the owner of a approximately one year old cat. Yes, Aramem is a, is is very much a cat person, <laughs> and yeah, like she's when from we first in Egypt, it makes sense. When we first hear the doctor, the doctor's like, "Okay, we're going." Let's talk sensibly about this sentient life form to sentient life form. If this is going to work, we're going to have to come to an arrangement. Now I need to get to the navigational controls, which are under you. Very cat-like behavior. Yep. They end up 
not at the Braxiatel collection, but instead in 17th century Paris. And of course, decide they'll go check out 17th century Paris. Yeah, and the and the doctors and the doctor is beginning to suspect that the TARDIS and Perry are conspiring to uh make it so that Aramem doesn't have to be dropped off and can stay with them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's very like, you know, like the the moves that you pull as at like sleepovers when you're a when you're a kid, so your friend doesn't have to leave early. <laughs> yeah. Also, um, I will say that. I ship Perry and Aramem very much. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> they I'm have very much here for that. such good chemistry. It is yeah. incredible. Yeah, no, 100%. Who do I not ship, however? Marie de Chivreuse and the Duke of Buckingham. Yeah, yeah. I think I think after, after the Buck- Buckingham's first scene, he's my first true hashtag let him die. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then he's like... Oh, so I'm going to give you this letter to give to this other woman. I swear you're really the one that I'm into. This is just like a thing I need to do. I friends like, dude, dude, no. And then when she leaves, he says, women, all of them wretched. (laughs) And it's just like, okay, dude, this is, uh, it's bad. He's bad. It's he's not a good guy. He is not. Meanwhile, Richelieu and the king are informed over this duel that had happened in the course of which one of Richelieu's men got killed. And uh, the musketeers say, oh, don't worry, we're defending the honor of Queen Anne. And Louis is like, oh, that's fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Richelieu is real <laughs> bad about it. Yeah. Actually, when we first meet Louis and Richelieu, they're, they're playing chess. And, oh, uh, yes. And we, get some, and we get some nice symbolism as it's like a uh, knight takes bishop, the crown wipes away the church. <laughs> a, fo- right. a foolish move, your, ma- your majesty. <laughs> a pawn waits in the shadows, <laughs> ready to strike. <laughs> symbolism. Symbolism. Oh, such good symbolism. <laughs> but also we we this version of Richelieu is just utterly done with everyone's shit especially he really is. I'm very <laughs> fond actually of the depiction of Richelieu here especially given you know the the tendency in a number of the traditional three musketeers adaptations and I'll talk more about this later that I would say even to a much greater extent than Dumas original novel tend to paint Richelieu as this kind of cartoon villain which you know don't get me wrong Tim Curry doing Richelieu as a cartoon villain is <laughs> amazing but oh yes <laughs> but it is not quite accurate to Cardinal Richelieu. And so I really like the Richelieu in this, who is clearly scheming, but is not like malevolent. Yeah. He's he's like he's he's definitely like got his his plots, his wheels within wheels, but he's like ultimately on the king's side, kind of more than the king is, because because Louis in this his priorities are not most sorted. He just wants to dance. <laughs> he just wants to dance. <laughs> He's got this like ball planned, and his real top priority is really this ball. And Richelieu's yeah, top priority is like uniting France. Yeah, and and Richelieu's like, uh, my, my guards and your guards keep uh, 
dueling in the streets, can you please make them stop, your majesty? And, he's, and, and Louis's like, no, I have a ball planned. I, I have to focus on this. So I will say in, I mean, well, not exactly in Louis's defense, but as like a slight counter to Cardinal Richelieu, like he also should like maybe tell his men to stop like running around calling the queen a whore. So, you know. True. Everybody was kind of at fault, arguably, in that fair. scenario. That is that is fair. The Doctor, Perry, and Aramem are exploring 17th century Paris. The Doctor is waxing eloquent about how actually Richelieu is like a much better dude than Dumas said he was. Yeah. Aramem is just excited by everything, as you would if you if you went forward in time 3000 years and, and we're, and we're confronted with all this new stuff. It's exciting. And Perry is like, can I just, I need a breather, a break from people. I'm just going to go. Can I just go for a walk? And the doctor's like, "Mm, I don't know, maybe dangerous. And Perry's like, Oh, come on. After all we've been through, I can handle a morning stroll. It's Paris. What could possibly go wrong? At which point, at which point, Every time I listen to this, I audibly yell, Perry, you know better. (laughs) When you say that, obviously something can go wrong. Uh, What goes wrong is that it turns out she is this like precise doppelganger for Queen Anne. And because of that gets kidnapped by, I'm going to go ahead and spoil it a little bit because it's just like really complicated by a group of people who seem initially like they're the Cardinals men, but who actually turn out to be Buckingham's men. Yes, and and their their attempt is almost foiled because Richelieu is in his carriage with with Marat, his guard captain, and and he spot and they spot Perry walking down the street out of out the carriage window, and, and Richelieu's like, "Why is this? Why is that idiot girl walking up around the streets all alone?" Ma'am, you are the Queen of France. You are the Queen of France, and so he sends Marat and a couple of of his guards out to you know, just tail her, make sure she doesn't get in any trouble. And then the fake guards are kidnapping her and they are almost foiled by Marat and the real guards, which turns out to be kind of a spanner in the works because uh, Marat knows all of his men's faces and he's like, those aren't my men. (laughs) Right, right. So he is suspicious. And also at this point, you know, at some point when she is in the process of being kidnapped, the doctor and Aramem, uh, you know, see see this happening but also uh, are not able to successfully stop this yeah well they don't they don't see it they they hear perry oh, yes, screaming they hear, yeah and they're it's like perry give me a sign more screaming that way <laughs> yeah but they are ultimately unsuccessful in rescuing her because um, the doctor crashes headlong into Delmar. <laughs> yes, yes. And there's a whole thing, right? You know, they challenge the doctor to a duel and then uh, get distracted quickly as a carriage passes by with a woman in it who the doctor looks at and, you know, says, Perry, what are you doing there? Basically. Well, no, Aramem, Aramem says, uh, Aramem says, doctor, look, it's Perry. And and the doctor's like, no, in a, in a carriage like that, that can only be one person, Queen Anne. <laughs> Yes. So, but it turns out, right, as we said before, that apparently Harry is the precise double of Queen Anne. Uh, hijinks will therefore ensue. Yep. Or al- are already ensuing. Hijinks have ensued. Yes, and will continue to ensue. 
they are trying to figure out at this point, basically, what's going on. The doctor recognizes that these are, this is Richelieu's men's uniforms, uniforms. that's the word in English Mm -hmm. that I am looking for. Apparently, uh, I just have too many languages on my brain today. And hello from Catalonia. And is like, that doesn't really make any sense, though. So he's trying to figure out what's going on. And he wants to also speak to the king and, you know, warn him about Queen Anne being in danger. But but obviously the king doesn't have time for this because uh, there's a ball. Okay. It's yeah. really important. Well, and we get this and we get this wonderful scene of Aramem conning Delmar and, and, and Ruffet into taking them to see the king. And it's it's like, it's like, I bet these common street ruffians don't even know the king doesn't even know their names. <laughs> He's like, and yeah, they're like, he does. We, we just talked to him half an hour ago. He gave us a sovereign. <laughs> yeah, which is which is a good move. And you know, it's also, it's a fun episode and that you can definitely also see Aramem, even though she's in a very different temporal and geographical context that she is still mm-hmm. using really effectively in ways that like, I kind of buy the fact that like, she is also this like elite, like in fact, royal figure. Yeah, she's she is a princess, and uh, yeah, it, it, the fact that she's a princess from three thousand years ago doesn't doesn't matter. Uh, ignore that. Um, she can she can still talk royal to yeah. uh, you know in a way that like convinces the people around her that yeah. she is that. Yeah, in fact, so convincingly that nobody ever questions like, where is this place I used to drew the princess up? I'm not sure I've heard of it. Karnak, which I think is actually like, I I don't know much. I'm not brushed up on my ancient Egypt, but I think it is uh, roughly uh, accurate to what 1402 Thebes is. I believe so as well, but I don't think it would be an especially familiar name or referent to King Louis the Thirteenth of France. Oh no, absolutely not. (laughs) But but she is she is BSing very effectively in such a way that that none of what none of what she says is technically false. Like she's like the thing, right? She's not actually BSing. It's just that like like, if anybody stopped and thought for five seconds, they'd be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, where is Karnak? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah and so she's like i am the princess aramem of karnak this is the doctor he's my most trusted advisor also true my handmaiden perpagillium has been kidnapped um like the king agrees that yeah kidnapping is a serious crime uh and so he tells uh delmar and ruffay to uh give the doctor and aramem all the assistance that they need to find perry Yeah, especially because they do emphasize the fact that Harry has this very striking resemblance to Queen Anne and that they assume Mm -hmm. that Queen Anne was, in fact, the intended target. Yeah. And everyone's like, we're worried about the safety of Queen Anne. And Queen Anne is like, I'm right here. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Perry, meanwhile, uh, realizes that Buckingham is the person who has actually captured her. He also is acting as though they, you know, have once had a thing. Which it's later confirmed in this version, at least uh, he did have a thing with Queen Anne. I'll get I'll get into the historicity of that right. later. Yes, um, we will discuss, but it's you know this certainly wouldn't be the first thing that had 
made that suggestion, I guess. So yeah, we'll, we'll get to that later. They are now, as I said, kind of trying, trying to figure out what's going on when the king has authorized this, but still is really primarily concerned about this ball. Mm-hmm. Uh, the queen and oh and also is is uh, concerned about the queen's relationship with buckingham since at some point yeah. he intercepted this letter that the duke of buckingham had sent uh, through uh marie de chevreuse it turns out he in fact sent that to anne and louis you know intercepts this or and you know is yeah suspicious. madame de chevreuse manages to escape his direct ire by uh by the conveniently timed distraction of a servant coming up and saying, your majesty, uh, we, we need you in the ballroom. The cake has arrived. Very important. Okay. There's. Oh, yes. <laughs> Which feels Louis, vaguely that... like a sort of, I don't know, French revolution reference. Possibly. I, I didn't actually pick up on that, but you know. It's, uh, you know, the, actually, the, the probably the probably apocryphal Marie Antoinette let them eat cake that he's like clearly more concerned with like cake than the state. I don't know. Well, actually, uh, well, no, because in that scene, he actually isn't. He actually doesn't want to be distracted. It's just that Madame de Chevreux like uses the conveniently the convenient timing to duck That's out, true. but he's like, not now. <laughs> That's true. Mm. He's concerned about like the like potential, you know, kidnapping. Infidelity of like, his wife. And uh, infidelity. Yeah, he has a number yeah. of concerns. Um, Louis and Louis and Anne are not on good terms at this point. Yes. Yes, that is that is made abundantly clear throughout. Buckingham is also uh gets a message from Marie informing him that surprise, you did not in fact kidnap the queen. So he goes off to, you know, talk to Perry and figure out what's going on. But it turns out that Perry has escaped. She's like, the window's rusted shut. Well, the window's rusted, but the glass isn't. <laughs> and so she uh, uses the cushions to to uh, shield herself from broken glass as she s- smashes the window and gets out. Uh, meanwhile, the doctor and... The doctor has sent Aramem to... Uh, look out for the queen because you know Queen Anne being the actual target is is still presumably in danger. So he sends Aramon to look after her, while he and Delmar and Ruffet try to track down Perry, which they do. <laughs> they they find this this beggar who goes by the name Blind Maurice. Um, <laughs> who used to be called Lame Maurice, but uh, the bottom fell out of the it's, market. It's a rough market out there. <laughs> and it's so reminiscent of, uh, um, you know, the, the like, the ex-leper in Monty Python, like. <laughs> well, at, at, at the end of the conversation, uh, Delmar, like, Del, uh, Blind Maurice tells them where he's heard that, quote unquote, the queen was taken which Ruffet recognizes as like, oh, it's this uh, abandoned chateau out of town. And, so, and Delmar's like, if you're, if you're wrong about this, I'll make sure that no one uh, comes anywhere near you as, the, as if you had like leprosy. And, uh, and, and Blind Maurice is, lo- is like, okay, okay. Alms for a blind man, alms for a- leprosy. Now there's a growth market. Right. 
<laughs> I'm very fond of Blind Marius. Blind Marius. <laughs> He's so fun. The doctor and Delmar and Ruffet run ride to this chateau that is supposed to be abandoned, but uh, which when they get there, it's crawling with people. Delmar and Ruffet manage to hide, but the doctor gets captured, like right away. <laughs> like immediately when he gets captured, uh, he clocks that the man who has captured him is not French. <laughs> So Perry has escaped. The doctor has been captured. Meanwhile, in Paris, Aramem is chatting with Queen Anne, who talks about, like, I definitely don't trust Marie. Like, I don't know what she's up to, but it's definitely something. I don't trust the Cardinal. I don't know why you trust this doctor guy. Yeah. Um, I, tr- I trust no one. <laughs> and Aramem does begin to have her own suspicions about whether the doctor is actually right that Richelieu is in the grand scheme of things, relatively decent. And, you know, I was talking about, like, I knew some corrupt priests back in my day. I don't know. (laughs) Which we saw in her introductory serial where they tried to have her assassinated multiple times. You know, you can't blame her for being concerned about corruption in the priesthood. It's That's that's a fair fair critique on her part. Mm -hmm. Richelieu and the king are squabbling over, like, what to do about the fact that there's like fighting in the streets and whatnot. The king is like, it's fine. Okay. I'm going to throw this party and that's going to fix everything. And everybody will be united under me, the king. Cause I'm awesome. And I'm throwing a really good party. And Richelieu's yep. like, no. Richelieu's like, I serve a higher purpose as well. You know, and, and, and the king's like, no Cardinal, you work for me. <laughs> Just gets yes, really exactly. petulant about it. And <laughs> this, as we'll talk about later, this series is very invested in there being this like major church versus crown, hence the title conflict between Louis and Richelieu, which we'll discuss later. Yeah. But that is, I would say, a lot of what's going on. And the doctor is uh, brought before Buckingham and he's try who is, you know, starts to interrogate him about what's going on. Richelieu then also finds that so Aramem has like snuck off to spy on him Richelieu like kind of like pulls her out and is you know starting to question her he's understandably unhappy he's like he's like we must deal with the spies in our midst ow let me go no (laughs) why are you spying on me Uh, which is a valid question yeah especially with this like mysterious person who is referring to herself as the princess of a kingdom that from the perspective of 17th century France does not exist. Mm-hmm. Although with, 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 with the state that Germany is in uh, at this point in time, can you really blame them for not being able to tell? <laughs> I don't think that Re- like, I think Richelieu knows the name. Richelieu would. That's fair. Any nobility of any, like certainly anybody who would have the right to the title of prince or princess. I a hundred percent believe that Richelieu specifically would know who those people are and like what those polities are. Yeah. King Louis the 13th, maybe not so much, but Richelieu, yeah. Richelieu knows his shit. Yes. So Richelieu is is questioning Aramem, and he's gonna and he's planning to take her inside because they're at his at his palace to question her. But Marat can't get the door open, 
because there's something blocking it from the other side, which turns out to be explosives, which uh, blow up. Richelieu and Aramem get knocked to the ground, and Mara is dead. Yeah, rest in peace. Which, which is a shame. Yeah, Rich- Richelieu's like he was an idiot, but he was my idiot. Yeah, I will avenge you. I will have justice. Yeah. So, and he and Richelieu is blaming the Musketeers uh, because you know he thinks that the Musketeers think he's the one that kidnapped. And all very complicated. Yeah. And he and Aramem go back to the Louvre to figure out what's going on. He's decided, at least, that he doesn't think currently that she's a spy. Though he's still, like, kind of suspicious of exactly what her deal is, which totally makes sense that he would yeah. be suspicious of this woman from a country that doesn't exist. Yep. He's like, he's like, I don't think you're a spy. I don't know what you are. A messenger from heaven, perhaps? <laughs> which, like, yeah, let's go with which that. I've, which I found, like really fun because uh obviously the the way Richelieu is thinking is like oh yes yeah, so, uh, it's like divine providence has sent has sent you to me to help me but Aramem's a pharaoh <laughs> right right so so in that sense uh yeah no she is she is a god on earth <laughs> technically there you go yeah so really, she is. Uh, she is in fact heaven sent. Yep. As they're walking over to the Louvre, it's also very clear that there's like fighting in the street, in particular between the musketeers and the cardinal's guards. All is chaos. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Buckingham, meanwhile, is torturing the doctor to try and get information out of him. There's a lot Buckingham. of like, who are you working for? Yeah. Buckingham has has jumped to the kind of insane conclusion that uh, that the doctor. I mean, he's a like he assumes the doctor is a spy. That makes sense given where he is. But then he jumps to the conclusion that you must be working for a foreign power that's planning an invasion of England. And the doctor's like, dude, I didn't know you were here until I got here. <laughs> I'm not working for anyone. It's like, it's like who who. It's like planning an invasion. I usually leave that to paranoid megalomaniacs. They're so much better at it. <laughs> and uh, indeed, as we will see. Yeah. And meanwhile, Rufe and Delmar are like, dang it, now we have to rescue two people. We have to do a double rescue. This is going to be really hard. And also, there's a lot of people here. And uh, maybe we should go back for reinforcements. But then Perry finds them. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So they're <laughs> and they're, they're like, okay. To... It's like, okay, we found one of them. Let's get back. And, and Perry's like, no, we're not leaving without the doctor. I'll rescue him myself if you won't help me. <laughs> so Richelieu then goes over to the palace, and when he goes over to the palace, he, you know, is concerned about the situation and would like to deal with it. And the king is basically like, fuck off. I'm busy. I'm planning this fucking party. (laughs) Yeah. Richelieu also is like talking to Anne. He's like, can you help with this? And she's like, look, like, I am not really on the top of his list. Like, I had this affair with Buckingham. I still haven't given him an heir. He's like not super fond of me right now. I'm really not the right person to be asking for help. Yeah. 
Aramem awesome. also has, uh, yeah, this like weird interaction with Marie, who is like a real gossip, which I feel like is somebody in her position of like doing various suspicious underhanded things should maybe like not be so much of a gossip. And Aramem like also basically tells her to shut the fuck up, which is pretty funny. Yep. Yep. I also think that like her gossipy tendencies are why Anne keeps her around. Yeah. Yeah. Cause Anne, cause Anne is like, I know what is going on because, uh, Madame, Madame de Chevreau sleeps with everyone at court. <laughs> right. Right. So, you know, it's, it's fine. So, uh, meanwhile, things are uh, actually getting worse between the king and Richelieu. And Richelieu's like, I'm going to have you excommunicated if you don't deal with this shit right now. And King Louis is like, fuck you, I'm putting you in prison. Yeah, it's like, it's like, you can't, it's like, you can't write to the Pope to have me excommunicated from a dungeon cell. Stuck it, Richelieu. It's basically the vibe. Yeah. And <laughs> at, at which point, uh, Anne furiously storms out of the room and uh, followed by Madame de Chevreau and Aramem, who are like, sorry, your majesty, you're on your own. <laughs> Yes. Uh, and, and meanwhile, uh, Perry does manage to successfully rescue the doctor. And they also find some useful evidence uh, that Buckingham basically has like a lot of weapon racks that make it seem like he's planning some sort of megalomaniacal invasion of France, as you do. Yep, as you do. And uh, and also Actually. we get a we get a a very fun nod to the original Three Musketeers novel because Delmar and Ruffet are holding off a whole host of Buckingham's people. So this serial is set in 1626. The novel is set in 1625. And they say, we haven't had this much fun since that business with the Queen's Diamonds last summer. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah, that was that was a very fun reference. And they're like, did we have to let those three thugs and that Gascon peasant take all the credit? (laughs) (laughs) Which is Uh, a fair description. Yep. Perry finds where the doctor has been locked up because Buckingham has left him having given up on like, it's like, okay, fine. I get that at this point, you're not going to tell me anything. I have stuff I need to do. (laughs) And Perry's like, ah, there's Buckingham. That must be where he, the place where he just came from must be where the doctor is. Yes, good move. Yeah. And the doctor also finds an incriminating letter that will, that will uh, get oh, re- yes. to hear read out later. Right, right. Very incriminating. Meanwhile, you know what the king's really concerned about? Whether Queen Anne is going to show up at his fucking ball. Yeah. He forces his way into her chambers past Madame de Chevreau, who, who, to be fair, does her level best to like try and keep him out, although there's only so much she can do because he's the king. And he like comes into the room and uh and she throws what's what sounds like a heavy vase at his head. <laughs> and he's like, I say, you've changed I mean, out of your ball gown. How dare you? <laughs> I mean, he's ultimately basically like, uh, you can come to the ball or you can come to the dungeon with Cardinal Richelieu. <laughs> Yeah, well, he's, he, and then he says to Aramem, and he's, he's like, uh, he's like, have you ever seen anything that, uh, anything so crazy, like, 
Princess Aramem, and, and Princess Aram and Aramem's like, I think Her Majesty has reason to be upset. And he's like, Oh, who asked you? And and Queen Anne throws oh, another vase and says, You just asked her. Aramem decides at this point she's gonna go find the doctor to help after, deal with this. After chewing out both Louis and Anne for their behavior. Yes. Yes. Which is excellent, but also yeah. is not uh, endearing her to Louis in particular. Nope. He's like, I want you at the ball, but then I want you out of France. <laughs> right. Yeah. So everything is chaos. You know, everybody's like killing each other in the streets for funsies, which is, of course, Buckingham's plan. We now learn, right, that the idea is basically that everything is just going to be such a disaster that the English army can just like waltz up to the Louvre. Yep. Uh, he is. He has actually been doing sort of a false flag operation where he's sending people in disguise as musketeers and cardinals guards to stir up fighting between the musketeers and the cardinals guards. Yeah, which, which which is a plan that's been working uh, frighteningly well. <laughs> yes, indeed. So they have this chaos. Aram finds the Doctor and Perry, uh, but they then split up again relatively quickly since the Doctor and Perry are going to go and warn Louis and Richelieu about what's going on. And the Doctor tells Aramem that she should go with the Musketeers and uh, basically lead, you know, try to like unite the King's men and the Cardinal's men and lead them into battle against Buckingham when he shows up with this English army. Yep. Because the Doctor has seen Aramem ride in battle yes. before and... Delmar's like, you shall lead us, Doctor. And the Doctor's like, I'm not a soldier. Take Princess Aramem. Take Aramem. She's actually good at this. Yeah, so very cool. Precious ball. Very important. Queen Anne's main job at this ball seems to be telling everybody, like, Richelieu has a cold. That's why he's not here. It's definitely not because he's in the dungeon. (laughs) Yeah. And the king is like very smug. He's like, look, I've united France. And it's like, because you got 45 people to show up at a dance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Although Anne's a little like, oh, you know, and, and like, and, and he's like, look, Anne, like, I was just trying to impress you. And she was like, oh, okay. Which she says, she says, if I didn't despise the ground you walk on, I would say that's the sweetest thing anyone's ever said to me. <laughs> so, yes. And, well, we're we're still, historically speaking, in the phase where it seems like, for a number of reasons that are slightly more different from and arguably more complicated than what we get here, uh, oh, they are yes. not getting along super great, but... You know, an interesting mm-hmm. little gesture at the fact that, I don't know, they'll eventually, in the real future, at least, get along well enough to conceive a child. Yeah. If nothing else. It, it'll take them another decade, but yes. Yep, yep. But, you know, eventually. Eventually. The doctor ends up, like, sneaking through a, like, through a secret tunnel to <laughs> make per- it into the Louvre. Perry's, like, the doctor's like, I... It's like, we can't get in past the guard. He's not going to let anyone in while the ball is going. But I know it. I know another way in. And, and Perry's like, Perry, who has been with the doctor long enough, she's like, oh, this is going to involve a dark, smelly tunnel, isn't it? <laughs> it is indeed a dark, smelly tunnel. 
And then um, when they're in the tunnel, she's like, you know, you could have just told me the truth. <laughs> yeah, but they make it and they uh, mm-hmm. they let they, out. They hear, yeah, they, they hear yelling and it's like, oh, it's the Cardinal. It's like, yeah. they're like, we should probably let him out, huh? And Perry is the distraction. Like she's, she is uh, wearing one of the Cardinal's guard disguises because uh, when, when they were breaking out the doctor, Delmar, Ruffet, and Perry uh, knocked out three guards and put on their uniforms. It's like, this will fool them for a couple seconds. <laughs> and, uh, and so Perry like goes up to the, to the uh, man guarding Richelieu's cell and she's like, hey, these boots, are they me? <laughs> At which point the doctor gets it with what I guess is a Vulcan nerve pinch. <laughs> Pretty good, pretty good. But mm-hmm. yeah, so they uh, they go in, they let out Richelieu. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Aramem is giving a lot of very rousing speeches and has uh, and you know manages to talk the musketeers and the cardinals men into uniting with one another in order to defend Paris against Buckingham. Yes, she she, she gives a very rousing speech. It's like, uh, in the name of your country, your king, your queen, and cardinal. At which point Ruffet yell uh, follows up with for the church and the crown and the musketeer and the musketeers and guards yell for the church and the crown and that's the title of the episode. Yeah, that's the name of this show. Uh, <laughs> so this is, ends up being very successful. Buckingham, you know, waltzes up to the gates, expects to, you know, it's at first it seems like everything has gone according to plan and nobody's bothering to guard the gates. But this whole army steps out and yep. uh, stops him. Del- and Delmar's tries like, to stop him, but you know they have, they've got a battle. Delmar rides out and says, uh, "I'm sorry, we're all out at the moment. Could you come back later?" <laughs> Meanwhile, the doctor- like, who's gonna stop me? And then and then it's uh, and then we get to imagine the visual of uh, Delmar, Ruffet, and Aramem like swords drawn. It's like two musketeers and a girl, and 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 Delmar's like, oh, and them, and then like and the collected, the collected uh, musketeers and guards, and then we get a big battle. Yeah, so we get a big battle, which we, which we cut away from immediately. <laughs> yeah, so because the doctor Perry and Richelieu are busy like bursting into the ball to be like, dude, dude, <laughs> there is an army marching on the Louvre as we speak. And he's like, Buckingham's here to bother my wife. And they're like, he's trying to conquer France, you idiot. Yep. <laughs> and the king finally is like, okay, I guess we should cancel the party and like seal the palace. Yep. Finally. <laughs> Took him long enough. Yep. Yep. We go back to we got the we got the battle, which you know very rousing uh and buckingham it does however manage to uh kind of get aside and like get into the palace um so he like shoves in he's like got a, and this has like a gun to the king's head and um then marie uh holds richelieu at gunpoint dun 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 yes and and, and richelieu's like oh I was wondering when you were going to play your hand. I've been on to you since the beginning. And she's like, I have a gun to your head. Maybe show a little more respect. 
Yeah, so and the doctor distracts her by attacking Buckingham. Uh, then Perry manages to kind of get the better of uh, Marie and they all manage to, to figure it all out. Uh, and the doctor actually, the doctor fights Buckingham. For, for all that, like, both Buckingham and Louis have been kind of awful to women, like, Richelieu, for all that he's uh, done with everyone, ends up being impressed by both companions. Because <laughs> when when Perry disarms Madame de Chevreau, he's like, incredible, well done, young lady. Have you considered a career in the church? <laughs> which i'm going to be discussing later Uh. oh yes then we also get a nice callback to the king's demons when the doctor's about to fight this duel because we we covered the king's demons featuring a fake king john several several times ago which also had the fifth doctor played by peter davison and the master was disguised as a French knight who was said to be the finest swordsman in France. And when the doctor's about to fight him, he says, haven't you heard? We're in England. And so, <laughs> and so here we get uh, Buckingham's like, I've been called the finest swordsman in England. And, and the doctor's like, oh, didn't you know? We're in France. <laughs> <laughs> then we get uh, this duel, which we don't actually get to see because it's audio, but, but Delmar's... Right. But Rufay's like to Delmar, this is the guy you wanted to duel earlier. Yeah, he's <laughs> like, Delmar... yes, for the best that that didn't end up working out. <laughs> yep. The doctor also, you know, uh, brings up the, you know, the letter and reveals, of course, you know, that Buckingham was, uh, was you know, planning this invasion. As a present to King Charles. <laughs> yes. And is like, I don't really want to deal with this. Yeah, is like, Okay, uh, if we we can't let this scandal get out because then uh, it be because then the assembled powers of Europe are going to be besieging England and it will be war and chaos all across Europe and that would suck. We are not ready for that, any of us. Which I will get into because uh, timeline wise, we are eight years into the Thirty Years' War. <laughs> right. I mean, I guess uh, you can see the argument that like France has other shit on its mind. Yeah. Oh, Fra- yeah. France does eventually get involved in the Thirty Years' War, but they, but they, like, Richelieu explicitly wants to deal with the internal shit first, right? Which is why, yeah, France is not involved yet. Right. England never fully gets involved because they end up uh, fighting themselves in the British Civil Wars. But right, they've got other shit on their minds. Uh-uh. Yeah. <laughs> But yes, he's like, all right, we're just going to kick this guy out of France. And Aramem's like, how are you not executing him? And the doctor's like, uh, Aramem, uh, they, they don't do that this uh, in this time. Um, we it's need to kind talk. of not true. I mean, like. No, I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> but like. I mean, they've decided in this particular situation that it's not for the best. But it's not like they also, don't execute people. But also execution is not something that the doctor likes his friends advocating. <laughs> no, no. He's like, we need he's... to have a talk. <laughs> yes. It's kind of like we're getting we're getting more of the doctor's morals than we're getting of like 17th century French morals, right. where I think they would have no moral qualms about executing Buckingham. They just don't think it's the right political move. Right. Yeah. And the doctor's also like, okay, don't worry. Somebody's going to kill him in just like two years. Don't worry about it. Yes. 
<laughs> he'll he's he's in about two years time he'll he'll uh run afoul of an english puritan with a grudge and a very sharp knife yes next morning all the dust has settled uh the doctor and perry and aramem are brought before the king and the cardinal the doctor is given honorary commissions in the musketeers and the cardinal's guards the doctor he's... tries to get them to do to say all for one and one for all and they're all like no <laughs> yeah and the doctor the doctor like it is, it is a consistent feature of his character that he hates these big thank you to-dos. Like, he uh-huh. just wants to, like, his his normal MO is, like, I want to slip out by the back entrance before I can receive any accolades or the bill for the damages. Right, right. <laughs> um, so so he's like, oh, no. Oh, no, I don't want this. And Perry and Aramem are just constantly elbowing him, like, be polite. Say thank you. It's like here, here are your tunic and musket. Oh no, can I not have the musket? I don't do guns, doctor. Oh yes, okay, thank you. <laughs> but yeah, so all has been resolved, and uh, also then back on the TARDIS, uh, the doctor suggests to Aramem that she is welcome to continue traveling with them if she would like to do so, which she does. And the doctor now just has to deal with the life of cat ownership. Yep. She's, uh, Aramem has named the cat Antronac after her old captain of the garden and mentor yeah. that we met in her first episode. It's very cute. It's very it's cute. Cat. And so thus endeth the episode. Although I will say in my lineup of episodes we have yet to do, we will be meeting uh, this specific lineup of TARDIS crew more than once. Oh, exciting. Yeah. Very fun. Yeah. Well, with that, we can get into the Vera et Falso and start talking a little bit about uh, what this got right and wrong in terms of historical accuracy. Uh, So first of all, I want to do a quick note about Dumas, since the doctor is very, very dismissive of like Dumas' historical accuracy or lack thereof. And I will say, is Dumas, is the Three Musketeers historically accurate? No, but is it like worse than your average historical fiction? Like kind of also no, I would argue. And I will note, Dumas actually did do research. He also ignored the research when he saw fit, but he did yeah. research. And, like, you got to give him a couple props for that. And actually, the uh, four central musketeer characters, uh, their names, at least, are actually all taken from uh, from real musketeers. Oh, neat. Like, yeah, yeah. That, like, he did he did enough research, right? Because he, like, came across, like, these various names. You know, so, like, the actual details of what people did. Like, D'Artagnan is, like, a little bit more based on some stuff that he found the other three like it's really just the names but you know that he did do wonder, research i i now i have to wonder if francois ruffet and patrice delmar are the names of real musketeers too that is a good question i did not look that up i didn't either and the other thing that i will say in juma's favor is that the, I would say, some of the most egregious historical inaccuracies associated with the Three Musketeers are, I would say, kind of bigger problems in Three Musketeers adaptations than in the actual novel. For example, the, like, Richelieu as cartoon villain thing. 
Yeah. Uh, Richelieu in the book is a much more complex and interesting and subtle character yes. than he usually gets to be in adaptations. That said, you know, like many authors, he cared more about the story and about like a political critique of Ancien Regime France at a moment when like the political situation in France was a little bit complicated in terms of the question of whether they're going mm-hmm. to like be a republic or have a monarchy. Yeah. In 1844. Yeah. And like, that's a lot of the background of like, he wants to essentially kind of like have a critique of both, in fact, the church and the crown. Yes. So it's, it's, it's one of those uh, current events, right? The, writes the plot more than the history. Yes, exactly. So, you know, that certainly is all worth noting, but I will say, you know, Dumas and worse than most historical fiction writers at history. Right. Uh, and arguably is like, as I'll talk about, as we'll talk about more later, arguably is not necessarily worse than like this particular adaptation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we'll discuss. We get the remark relatively early that, so, you know, Aramem is impressed with a lot of things. Harry is not impressed with the uh, pervasive sewage smell. And we get the comment from the doctor that, you know, sewage systems aren't that advanced in this period. And okay, it's not entirely wrong, but I would like to note that relative to the era, Paris has a relatively advanced sewage system, which actually dates back to 1370, when the uh, first uh, kind of sewer canals start to be built in Paris. However, the waste was still basically set up to flow into the Seine and the sewers were generally open. So that all is not totally ideal in terms of a sewage system that doesn't smell or give you diseases. You know, it probably smells worse than 1984 Baltimore. So, Yeah, no, probably. And Paris in the early 19th century, due in part to population growth, is uh, really in the midst of a sewage crisis. Yes. Uh, (laughs) <laughs> that ba- like basically it's like like everybody is just like this is a problem and so when Dumas is writing actually in 1844 Paris is in the process of some very extensive sewer system development which involved basically for the first time actually sending the sewage to fertilize fields outside the city instead of into the Seine and also oh. building sewage networks that effectively isolated the sewage system from the drinking water uh, so actually, by the we- way now I'm, now I'm extending way beyond my area into the 19th century so please somebody feel free to correct me if i'm like <laughs> off on this but actually we might also have gotten a a, a a a tiny reference to that because uh when uh louis and richelieu louis first brings up the topic of like my musketeers are better than your guards richelieu was like oh can't we talk about the drains <laughs> right <laughs> right which you know he seems like the type who would be concerned you can kind of buy it Mm-hmm. Uh, I will also note that the the Paris sewage system has proved oddly intriguing. So in the wake of some of these improvements to the Paris sewage system, during the 1867 World's Fair, which was held in Paris, visitors were in fact invited to come and visit and like take a tour of the functioning brand new sewer system. And you can also visit the sewers today. There is a museum, the Musée des Égouts in Paris, which is the the Paris Sewer Museum. Uh, So you can go and experience the Paris sewers for yourself. Uh, And if you instead would like to experience the Paris sewer system through literature, Dumas' contemporary, you know, more more or less, uh, Victor Hugo, 
in the novel Les Miserables, basically like Victor Hugo has these amazing just like disquisitions, which I absolutely love. Like, I don't know why they don't do this in the musical, but you know, there's like the climactic scene, right? Where like uh, Jean Valjean has like gone into the sewers, right? And that's where he's hiding and he's got, and he's like rescuing Marius. So he's like going through the sewers. He's like crawls into the sewers uh, with Marius's body, like thrown over his shoulder. And then Victor Hugo is like, I'm going to stop at this climactic action moment. And I am going to have like 150 pages on the Paris sewer system and its entire history. And it is my favorite thing in the world. It's so good. (laughs) So everybody should read this. It is. I highly recommend reading the like God, 1,000-ish pages of Lambeau's Unabridged. It's amazing. I read it before I watched the musical, and my immediate reaction was like, why did somebody think this should be a musical? But it's so good. <laughs> I, to be fair, I don't think, I think, actually, you know, what What, what Les Miserables needs is an, is an additional number that's like a 24-minute prog rock epic about the history of the Paris sewers. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> really you know admit like get the vibe of the original work uh, yes. which otherwise it just does by being mostly very depressing um yeah you know true uh, but all, like slightly less depressing in the sense that like in the book the Tenardiers are like not comic relief they're just like also miserable abusers <laughs> and in the musical they're like we need one thing to be funny for two minutes Yep. So we've settled on the child abusers being very funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway. Uh, other things, uh, we get the line about, like, Araman, like, young lady, have you ever considered a career in the church? Uh, not in 17th century France, she wouldn't. Nope. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, I mean, nuns exist, but they don't uh, do anything that Perry does. <laughs> Right. And that is very much not a career in the church in the sense of like the kinds of things that like, you know, that like Richelieu does, right? That like, you know, nuns are great and they get to like do some cool things. And maybe if, you know, you, you have certain, you might end up like, if you, you know, have sort of spiritual authority, you might end up having some form of influence, but unlike people, but unlike, I mean, actually like not even monks often tend to have that either, right? It's the people who are the secular clergy, the people who are essentially basically like bishops, cardinals, archbishops, the Pope, who really Mm -hmm. have like political authority in a really significant way. Yeah. And, and like, for, for, for however impressed Richelieu is, I don't think he would realistically offer Perry a position in the Cardinal's guards, which seems to be what. Right. Yeah. Or, or a bishopric, which is what would actually be meant no, by a career yeah. in the church. Uh, also that. Ma'am, would you like to be a bishop? Like That's mm, not how it works. Not uh, happening in, in 17th century France or in the Catholic not, Church today. No, no. <laughs> uh, modern Church of England, maybe, but otherwise, no. <laughs> and then I want to just say a couple of like little things just to kind of like reiterate that I've already talked about I'm in other episodes, at least uh, based on my notes. I didn't listen to the other episodes, but I did read my notes for the other episodes before we uh, get into the Historia of Veritas and I put you in charge. Uh, but of course that the Musketeers are a real company. There is evidence of rivalry with Richelieu's guards. It is indeed the case that Anne and Louis did not 
get along great. I know you're going to, I think, touch on that a little bit yes. more. Just a bit. There's also the uh, the only other, the other thing I will say that I think is overblown is that while there is this conflict between the King's Guards and the Cardinal's Guards, and that's like a real rivalry, this is a period where I would say, in fact, like Louis overall quite trusts and relies on Richelieu for better or for worse. And mm-hmm. so there's really not quite as much church versus crown conflict as is being emphasized here, at least not at the kind of like high statecraft level. Right. Yeah. At this point, at this, at this point in time, uh, the church and the crown are, I mean, Louis is a good Catholic monarch. Their interests are essentially aligned. I would say at this stage, like do, do both to the fact that like, Louis is a relatively good Catholic monarch. He also trusts and is listening to Richelieu. And Richelieu, for his part, is, I'm sure, a person who at least sort of cares about religion, but also, mm-hmm. like, is, intro- is like, really invested in, like, a lot having to do with, like, the authority of the French state. And so, like, he is also not somebody who is trying to, like, he wants to empower himself, but he's, like, not somebody who wants to empower the church at the expense of the state or the crown, in contrast to, you know, other other situations that one might be able to point to in the medieval and early modern era. He wants to centralize France in such a way that both he and the king are more powerful. Right, right. So, you know, we... That That is essentially the kind of central conflict in some way. I mean, except for, you know, uh, the central conflict that is a distraction from the real problem, I guess. And that is a conflict that is uh, sort of invented for the purpose of this show. Well, and for the purposes of, of Dumas. Dumas. Yes, that, that's yes, that's, one, that, of the, that's yeah. one of those inaccuracies that can be traced back to Dumas. Yes, so. absolutely. But, you know, it is like then one of those things, right? Where I'm a little like, come on. And then he's like, Dumas is bad at history. I'm like, are you better? Anyway. <laughs> yeah. But so with that, I think we can move into the Historia at Veritas, where we're going to uh, do a deep dive into Buckingham. And Lily, uh, you have volunteered to uh, be be in charge, to be our, our resident uh, historian and expert on Buckingham for the purposes I... of this episode. I did volunteer to do that. Oh boy! <laughs> yes, uh, I actually, I actually. So normally, when when we do Doctor Who, I try to uh, do it chronologically in re- in release order as much as I can. But I actually did a bit of sequence breaking uh, here because we're doing the Church and the Crown before Seasons of Fear, because I had been listening to. Another podcast, David Crowther's The History of England, which is very good, which first got me on the subject of George Villiers, the first Duke of Buckingham, who is a very exciting and eventful figure. I'll... I'll, Did a lot um, of his brief, what, 35 years? He did. And that got me reading Roger Lockyer's really excellent biography of Buckingham. So... I had been thinking of Buckingham a lot, and that is why I suggested we do this episode now. So Buckingham 
he started from fairly humble beginnings, all things considered. Like, he was not a commoner, but he was the fourth son of a country knight, which is pretty low on the pecking mm-hmm. scale, all things considered. It's like pretty, um, it's like nobility, but it's like pretty minor nobility. Yeah. And also in primogeniture infused England, a fourth son is not going to be inheriting much. But what he did have on his side was really good looks. That is where it starts. Uh, he is he is regarded as uh, one of the most attractive men of his day. And then and, you look at the portraits and you're like, him? I don't know, maybe that's just me. Well, it, it, it depends on the <laughs> I mean, I... Personally, I think it depends on the portrait because mm, I, I there are some there are some portraits of him where I, where I'm like really, but there are others where I'm like okay, I can see it, yeah. which is really variance depending on the painter. But right. um, but he had this reputation of being like 17th century England's hottest man alive. King James the first had known proclivities in that direction. Um, now, I must do the, the traditional historian's caveat of saying that we cannot 100% for sure say that they were banging. That said, they absolutely were. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think as like, people go, like, I certainly wouldn't be, like, surprised if they were banging. Between some very suggestive letters that exist and uh, the fact that King James was not subtle with his affections, like like he would like hug and kiss Buckingham in public, and he and he had like a series of quote of favorites, um, which you know with other monarchs can just imply like yes, this is a this is my best friend, but with James it's a bit more. And the letters are also like I, I was looking at some like at some of the some excerpts from like the letters are like rather like romantic in addition like they, oh absolutely yeah um, um, certainly at least yeah what, what what like we would recognize now as being rather that, rather romantic uh, yeah that night at Farmingham which I will never forget <laughs> uh, it's it's not subtle um, but Buckingham. The main thing he had going for him initially was his looks, but that said, he was actually a very competent politician. He was able to play the political game of, you know, backstab, cutthroat English court politics very well. He distributed patronage to keep a lot of a lot of competent people on his side and was able to like make sure his enemies were not in a position to take him down. And to his credit, like he also had, he he didn't want to be the one and only political figure of influence in England. Like mm-hmm. there, there were factions at court and he was fine with that. He had an attitude of live and let live unless the other guy didn't. So like when he first, when he first rose to power, he was kind of raised up by a faction that was in opposition to a faction led by the very powerful and influential Howard family, who, if you remember back to Henry VIII, produced not one but two of of Henry's six wives, uh, Catherine Howard and her cousin Anne Boleyn, Mm -hmm. both the ones who got beheaded, which is unfortunate, but another Mm. story. One could argue that it's in part the fault of the fact that their uncle fucking sucks. Oh, yes. 
but that's that is another story. Um, yes, it is that that happened a hundred years ago. So when Buckingham first rose to power, there were two main factions at court. There was uh, the Howard faction, essentially, which which favored like being lenient with the Catholics and you know being pro a Spanish alliance to secure their own power because Spain is at this point in time the most powerful country in Europe and South America. Against them are the so-called Patriot faction led by the Earl of Pembroke and the Archbishop of Canterbury, who are like, no, we we need to persecute the Catholics and also not side with Spain because we hate Spain. <laughs> In general, the general English attitude is very anti-Catholic and anti-Spain at this Indeed. point in time. We are only a few decades out from the Spanish Armada crisis. And on the other end, only a couple of decades out from the English Civil War, which yes, has... But that, ha- but that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> right, yes. But just in terms of, like, putting things into context, in terms of, like, English anti-Catholic sentiment, that's probably, like, part of what kind of justifies the English Civil War to some extent, right? Is it, like, it is in part a, like, Protestant versus, like, not good enough Protestant conflict. Yes. So Buckingham is is very good at, at like juggling all these factions at court and maintaining his place at King James's side. Buckingham's policies and attitudes are always in line with the king. Like he makes a point of like, I am here to serve the king. That is what I'm here to do. And so a lot of the more unpopular policies that King James followed get blamed on Buckingham even though mm-hmm. they were James's idea and Buckingham was just going along. But uh, but the English public are like, oh, there's no way the king is against us. It must be his evil counselors. So that's a big part of why Buckingham's popularity starts to go downward. But I, I am here to talk about uh, the time that Buckingham actually tried to invade France, um, which uh, did not go as well as, as this serial. Mm-hmm. Um, this is going to get a little complicated because we are touching on the Thirty Years' War, and that is the nature of the beast. The Thirty Years' War, one of its starts, Ferdinand, the King of Bohemia, the Catholic Habsburg King of Bohemia, gets overthrown by his Protestant subjects, who uh, then offer the Bohemian throne to Frederick, the Elector of the Palatinate, which is over more westward towards francy ish it's it's on the rhine it's i don't know how exactly to describe the map of germany at this point because it's a bit of a disaster where where this involves england is because frederick the new king of bohemia is married to elizabeth stuart the daughter of king james and so King James is not happy with the overthrow of a legitimate monarch, even if it does benefit his family directly. But then in retaliation, Spain, who are also Habsburgs, invade the Palatinate, which is Frederick, what Frederick is supposed to be in charge of. And James isn't here for that either. So he's like, okay, we need to negotiate a settlement here. I've got a marriage tied to Frederick. I'm going to try and get a marriage tied to the Spanish as well. 
by marrying my only surviving son, Charles, off to the Infanta Maria. And this is the so-called Spanish match, which uh, Buckingham is on board with because it's the king's plan, but which the people of England and Parliament in particular are not on board with because fuck the Spanish. Yep. There's a lot of negotiating with the Spanish over the Spanish match. King Philip IV at no point has any interest in marrying his daughter off to this backwater heretic over in England. He's the king of the most powerful Catholic country in in Europe. Who cares about the English? But instead of like, you know, just outright telling them like, we have no interest in this, uh, please go home. His chief minister, the Count Duke of Olivares, which is his title, Count Duke, I don't know why, suggests, okay, how about we string them along? Because as long as we're stringing them along, they will not cause problems for us. And like all this stringing along happens and there's negotiations upon negotiations that go nowhere. And it gets to a point where Buckingham and and, and Prince Charles sneak out of England and to Madrid in disguise (laughs) to try and get the negotiations to go somewhere. When they ultimately finally don't and Buckingham and Charles realize that they were being led on this whole time, they return to England in disgust and join with Parliament against King James to to say, hey, let's go to war against Spain. Spain sucks. This is like the only time ever that uh, Buckingham and Charles are on the same page as Parliament. Um, (laughs) And so it is in this context that Buckingham starts negotiating with France because England at this point in time is a perpetually broke backwater up in the corner of Europe. It's not the big empire that we will come to know and despise. So he goes to, and he starts negotiating uh, and trying to get an alliance with France against Spain because uh, France is the most powerful non-Habsburg power in France, uh, in in Europe, also in France, I suppose. Um, (laughs) And also uh, because France is the only nation besides besides Spain that uh, could pony up a large enough dowry to pay off some of King James's massive debts. Mm -hmm. Because King James was not the most uh, responsible spender out there. Um, but the we're also in at a point where all across Europe, economic realities and inflation are making it so that running a government is more expensive now. And in a place like Spain, they can, the king can just raise taxes higher. And in a place like France, Richelieu and Louis are working to centralize so that they can raise taxes higher. But in England, Yay. James has to deal with Parliament. And James hates dealing with Parliament because as King of Scotland, it was fine. Before he was King of England, he was King of Scotland. It was fine because the Scottish Parliament do as they're told. The English Parliament do not. (laughs) And so the English Parliament are like, well, what do you what do you need all this money for? Like, it's like James is like, I need a million pounds to run the government like and 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 prepare for this war that you want. And they're like, what do you mean a million pounds? And what are you going to spend it on? 
we we Show know you're not your a budget, James. You're not a, you're not a responsible spender. And James is like, I'm the king. I don't have to tell you. But uh, but Buckingham, who uh, is among other things, he's picked up several titles in his in his time. But the most important is Lord Admiral. So he is in charge of the English Navy. And to his credit, he does a pretty good job of trying to reform the English Navy, which came to him as a corrupt disaster that uh, <laughs> was barely holding together because. Uh, they kept they they kept buying the cheapest ships possible that kept falling apart, um, <laughs> and so he's like, uh, to maintain a standing navy, I need at least three hundred thousand pounds. And Parliament's like, here is the entire budget for the uh, for the government. It is one hundred and forty thousand pounds, not a penny more. Don't ask, don't ask for more. So Buckingham ends up trying to repair the. Navy largely out of his own pocket. But the English Navy is like the one thing that the English are known for. The French don't have much of a Navy. So that is that is the bargaining chip that Buckingham has when he's dealing with Louis and Richelieu. And now I have to talk a bit about the French situation at the moment. Specifically, they're with the Huguenots, the French Protestants. Back in 1598, Henri IV issues the Edict of Nantes to try and bring the French wars of religion to a close. It turns out to be just a ceasefire, but he's like, okay, the Protestants can have a few defensible walled cities within France and they will stay there and do their own thing. And the rest of France will be Catholic and it'll be fine. We're all fine here. Um, he of course being all... somebody who was himself Protestant and converted to Catholicism. So he could be king and not have everybody hate him. Yeah, which didn't work because then he got assassinated for not being Catholic enough. Yeah. Um, But aside from the fact that they're Protestant, these little states within a state do not fit Richelieu's vision of a unified France at all, as you wouldn't. Because, like, if you want a centralized state, little pockets of not that within your country are not what you want. So he starts, like, trying to roll back the Edict of Nantes, take back those cities. Buckingham proposes to Richelieu. Buckingham is good at at dealing with English politics. It's in foreign relations that he really meets his match, and Richelieu is 20 times the statesman that Buckingham ever was. So he's like, okay, I'll provide some ships so that we can do a joint operation against Genoa, which is held by the Spanish. And you are absolutely not to use them against your own French Protestants. And Richelieu, once he has the ships, promptly ignores him and starts besieging the city of La Rochelle on the coast, Mm. which is the main Huguenot city at this point. And so the English Parliament are, of course, horrified. And so Buckingham's like... They, of course, don't love the idea of English forces being, you know, English, Protestant England's forces being used against their Protestant brethren in, uh, in France. Yeah, and so Buckingham's like, oops, uh, well, let's go uh, attack France now. Also, during the initial negotiations, the one thing that does go well for the English is they do manage to secure a marriage alliance. Buckingham brings home Louis's younger sister, Henrietta Maria, who becomes... Yes, so that's where Henrietta who, who, who marries in. Who marries Charles I, yes. um, who is by this point king. And despite the fact that, you know, King James is now dead, 
and the rest of the English body politic is like, oh, great. Now we can get some of all those titles that Buckingham's been hoarding. Charles is like, nope, Buckingham's going to carry on just as he always has. I believe he is the only person who like fully maintained his position from uh, James's functioning government to Charles's. I would not be surprised. I'm not sure about exactly everyone else's situation, but uh, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure I read cause that. Like, so. Cause like, you know, you would, you would think that, that, uh, that Charles, who is a very like staid and formal and introverted kind of a guy and Buckingham, this, this big, loud, flamboyant hot boy uh, mm. would not get along. And initially they didn't, but they eventually came to like such an, like to kind of a relationship where it's like, it's like, yes, this is, this is my gay stepdad and I love him like family. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Buckingham's like, he's like eight years older than Charles. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he's kind of filling in that void in uh, Charles's life that the death of his own older brother left Prince Henry Frederick, who died some point before this. Charles authorizes this invasion plan of France and parliament like want an invasion of France, but they are very reluctant to finance it because that is how they do. Parliament never (laughs) wants to finance anything. No, that is one of the factors that leads up to the British civil wars. Like, yes, a a lot of the fault was with, was with King Charles, but parliament was not blameless. Right. It's like they have a, they have a job. Did anybody really behave well during the English Civil War? Like, no, that's, that's true. They didn't. But, you know, their job is to finance the government and they didn't. So Buckingham is dealing with an underfunded Navy. He's trying to, like, he's trying to muster a force that can take on the French fleet at La Rochelle and, and, and save them there. But he's just plagued by, like, you know, Poor financing, poor, really bad luck, because he has to get, to get to La Rochelle, he has to take the fortress at the Ile de Mar. Uh, and to be, and he, so he arrives at the Ile de Mar with his ragtag fleet and starts the siege, but the, but the fortress at the Ile de Mar had just been resupplied. And so they managed to hold out for longer than the English fleet could. And then the French fleet showed up and chased off the the English fleet that were in a very bad state. And it was just an utter disaster. And this actually happened in 1626. So, But it is, yeah, it is it's just an invasion that is not like Buckingham just being like, eh? No, it is Buckingham <laughs> being like, uh, this is, this is uh, retaliation for a legitimate grievance. Um, and also like his job. Like it's not like he's like it's he's like surprise. And and it has nothing to do with his uh affair with Queen Anne, which may have actually happened uh while he was it's over possible, there. Pick- who knows? Yeah, like there are some contemporary reports that say it happened while he was there to pick up Henrietta Maria, uh, that he had a fling with Queen Anne. Which would have been a really stupid diplomatic move, but also I can't uh, I can't say that knowing what I do of Buckingham that he wouldn't have. Um, he certainly seems to have like expressed interest in her. He's the kind of guy who would. Yeah, like know? he seems to have like expressed interest, and she seems to have been flattered, and yeah. that's about all that can be said definitively. Yeah. 
there there is less evidence of uh, an affair with Queen Anne than there than there is of uh, his definite thing with King James. That all goes like shit. Buckingham is chased back to England. The English Parliament try to have him impeached from all, all his offices. King Charles actually takes the bullet for him, which is a reversal of how it's supposed to go. Because uh, traditionally, like uh, if the England, if the monarch does something unpopular, then uh, you know the politically expedient way thing to do is because the king can do no wrong. It must have been the counselor to be thrown under the bus. Right. But but Charles, this is arguably like a genuinely noble characteristic of his he's like no i am i am in charge i'm taking responsibility but at, politically that's not the good move ultimately which is because because like charles has the tendency to like take the blame for his subordinates as opposed to the other way around which gets him in hot water ultimately but you know it's arguably a noble stance because it's like, I'm the boss, I'm taking responsibility. But anyway, uh, so Buckingham is like, is not deterred. I mean, he is at this point the most unpopular man in England, but he is not deterred. He's, he's like, we will still uh, save the Rashida. So he starts planning a second verse, same as the first invasion of France in 1628, which... As he is trying to plan and get the fleet together again, financing from his own pocket again, he runs into uh, a couple of officers from from his first attempted campaign. And as he's talking to one of them, the other one, a man named John Felton, uh, he's disappointed in how the, the first campaign went down. He's traumatized by it. It went so badly. And so, and he's like, we're not doing this again. And he... And didn't he also knife- think that it, like, wrecked his career, basically? Or, or like, that's at least one of the... Also that. Also yeah. that. And so he uh, pulls out a knife and stabs Buckingham to death. George Villiers, first Duke of Buckingham, was was 35 years old. He had served capably as the king's first minister, uh, as, the, as the most important politician in England... Uh, but less so in foreign affairs for, I want to say, 14 years. He was appointed Lord Admiral in 1621. That's... Well, he got... That's only seven years ago, but he was doing other things before that, so... Right, right. And also, uh, an, an, a note, the doctor refers to him as England's Prime Minister, which is an anachronism. Um, right, that's right. But he was the most important politician in England who held a number of important offices. So functionally he was, but the, but the, uh, but the term prime minister specifically goes back to a hundred years after Villiers's time. Ultimately, Charles's second son, James II, converted back to Catholicism, which as the head of the Protestant Church of England is uh, a bad a bad for the, the people of England. They had him overthrown and replaced by his nice Protestant daughter, Mary II. Uh, and then they rewrote the succession rules this to say, uh, also, you can't be Catholic. But then when uh, Mary's Wait, sister, right? Mary's sister, Queen Anne died childless, uh, they had to cast about for a new 
actually Protestant heir. And uh, they ultimately found one in the form of uh, Georg of Hanover, a German prince who did not speak a word of English, who was the grandson of Elizabeth Stuart, uh, who the briefly queen of Bohemia, who I mentioned at some point in all this. Um, and so since George I did not speak any English and didn't really know the English political situation, he trusted a lot of his government decisions to a minister named uh, Robert Walpole, who is considered to be England's first prime minister and definitely the longest serving at 21 years. So that's what a prime minister, that's like the origin of the actual term prime minister, but functionally, that's more or less what Buckingham was. It's like a one, useful analogy, arguably, for like explaining yeah, to Perry who he is or something. Exactly. Like, like he is he's he is very much Richelieu's English counterpart. And I think Richelieu was contemporarily referred to as the chief minister of France. Yeah, so so he is not the actual prime minister, but yeah, for, right. for lack of a better term, sure. Yeah. I also find it very entertaining that, you know, so obviously like his assassin uh, was executed, but the general public was just like so fucking over Buckingham that apparently like they just like treated him like a hero. Yep. He did get executed, but he was cons- but he was treated like a national hero because everyone hated Buckingham so much. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I am officially uh, older than Buckingham forever now. <sighs> yep. I've, I've reached the age of 36, which Buckingham never saw. <laughs> yep. I'm not there yet. But yeah. <laughs> Good but yeah, times. So, yeah. So I and think he, that brings way, us. You can, you can see him buried in Westminster Abbey. Mm-hmm. So yeah. He, he, I think he's one of the few who was not like the king to be, to be afforded that honor. Yeah, I feel like most of the people in Westminster Abbey are either actual, like, royalty or arts and science luminaries. Yeah, actually, that does that does remind me of 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 a detail that I uh, didn't quite bring up. But he started life as the fourth son of a country knight, which is not a very high place to start. He ended it as a duke. And it is incredibly rare even at this point in time for someone who is not a member of the royal family to be made a duke right baron or even earl fine but like the last time that a not a, someone who's not a member of the royal family was made a duke i want to say was john dudley the duke of northumberland in 1550 yeah, and then he's like, I, I I was reading this that like with the with the fall of the Duke of Norfolk that he becomes like one of very very few, in fact, like existing non royal dukes. Yeah, because Northumberland did end his life the father in law of Queen Jane, who did not last long either. <laughs> right. With that, I think we can get into the. Fabula Nostra, where we talk about a, uh, or we come up with an idea for a story inspired by this one. I feel like you you said you actually came up with one in advance, so I'm going to do mine relatively quickly, just because I feel like mine's not that interesting. 
I'll go into detail. It's fine. <laughs> Oh, I, so I mean, I didn't come up with that much detail. Um, <laughs> so is is the actual as the actual what's going on? So okay, fair. Mine is really inspired by the fact that it's called you know the Church of the Crowd, and you know with the implication right that while there is the kind of like getting together at the end, a lot of it is really about the church versus the crown in a way that, as we discussed, is not entirely reflective of France during this particular period of time. So, all right, I'm actually doing even like a last minute, like change up in terms of what I was even initially thinking. I'm actually going to do another period, a different period where one could argue that there is something of a conflict and then a resolution of a, although maybe not in a super uh, healthy, great way of a conflict between church and crown in France. And that is, so King Philip IV, who is like the worst, like, you know, like this, this is like the whole dude who's like his like MO throughout his reign is basically to like borrow a fuck ton of money from people and then uh, destroy them instead of paying them back. Hence, kicking out the Jews, kicking out the Lombard moneylenders, bringing down the Knights Templar, etc. So he also had uh, some really fun conflicts with uh, Pope Boniface VIII, who, you know, wasn't probably a great individual, but also like, I don't know, maybe didn't deserve totally to be uh, beaten to death at the orders of the King of France. Yeah, no, that Philip IV ordered a hit on the King of France. We cannot make this up. Like, yep, yeah, no, Philip, also, Philip IV of France had the Pope fucking murdered. Also, uh, one of my favorite details about their whole beef is at one point Boniface opens a letter to to Philip with the with the line, listen, son, <laughs> which like, <laughs> oh, he's like, no. And so then Philip IV is basically like. All right. So you know what the problem was with the fucking papacy? It was that I wasn't fucking running the papacy. So that's how that uh, church versus crown issue gets resolved is that basically like he ends up after not Boniface VIII, but uh, like there's like one more pope in between, but basically like bullying <laughs> the, uh, the, the like papal con- the conclave into electing a French guy, Clement, uh, Clement V as Pope, and then uh, getting that guy to decide, actually hear me out, the papacy is going to be in Avignon now, where I am easily in range of and controlled by the King of France. Yep. Uh, and leaving the papal states popeless for a good 68 years. Yep, yep. And uh, then, of course, also leading into the papal schism, when for a while there are two, and for a shorter while, three popes. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, this is uh, a, a fun way in which we do, uh, we do, as I said, see a, a resolution of a, uh, a conflict between the church and the crown, which ends up having the church and the crown uh, united in a way. <laughs> Maybe not in a great way, but in a way. Uh, that's, that's one way to say it. Sure. <laughs> I mean, you know. So I think actually it would be really, really fascinating if the doctor actually had to intervene on behalf of like, because it's how history worked, making these things happen, which like arguably were kind of not so great. Where he's like, guys, we really can't say Bonifaz the Eighth being beaten to death on the orders of the King of France. We've got to just let this one go. Amazing. Incredible. <laughs> so yeah, that's what I want to see. Nice. Mine is, so 
like I said, this whole the whole reason I picked this one as uh, as the one we're doing today uh, is because I've been here reading so much about the Duke of Buckingham, and so what I want to do is just a show about the Duke of Buckingham. In his 35 years uh, of life, like he had like a meteoric rise to power. There is so much going on with him, like swashbuckling drama, uh, romance, gay stuff. Like, so what I want it to do is like a, just a series based on him, like that doesn't paint him as like the cartoon villain that either mm-hmm. this or frankly uh other adaptations of the three musketeers like the one with the airships do i i just want like i want to paint him paint him as the complex figure he was it's going to have gay makeouts because we just des- because we the viewing public deserve that um absolutely it's going to have him like dealing with everything he dealt with, like trying to reform the Navy, dealing with King James's temper. Uh, I will say, like, if we're going to take some, like, liberties, I actually think it is much more realistic or, like, true to, I don't know, an interpretation of what actually happened. Like, I, I would buy him making out with King James I way more than I would buy him actually having had an affair with Anne of Austria, which is much more likely to be depicted as, like, a fact in adaptations. Right. And then, like, his contentious, his his initially contentious uh, turned, like, bosom buddies relationship with Charles, the utter nonsense that is Buckingham and Charles sneaking out of England in disguise to go to Madrid. (laughs) And then, like, going from, like, effectively playing off all of the English nobility against each other to being played himself by Olivares and Richelieu, uh, his foreign counterparts. I've even done some casting for this. So as Buckingham, I would cast Tommy Knight, who I think could do, like, a good dash, dashing, swashbuckling young character without being Tom Holland again. Um, Because I'm tired of everyone fan casting Tom Holland as everything. That's Um, Well, as his predecessor as the favorite, the volatile uh, Scotsman Robert Carr, who uh, was dead-ass, straight-up an abusive boyfriend to the king, I would cast David Tennant. um, Mm. Because because when I think... Well, or or David Tennant as James, because... He, a younger David Tennant would be a good Robert Carr. I think. I think David Tennant, as he is now middle aged, as King James, but someone someone equally dashing but far more Scottish as uh, Robert Carr. Let's see. I don't have a good King Charles, but the last but the last bit of casting I had done is as Richelieu. I think the uh, I think the the part of the. Uh, of the brilliant statesman who is uh, five steps ahead of our protagonist at every turn and is vaguely sinister, but not necessarily completely evil, is tailor-made for Charles Dance. Oh, absolutely. Charles Dance yeah. would be an amazing Richelieu. He'd be so good. I um, so, somebody, somebody has to listen, actually, to that. Somebody has to cast Charles Dance as Richelieu in something. Yes, Absolutely. And then I feel like I had a couple other casting notes, but I don't 
I want Peter Capaldi in there as someone, um, as as one of the Scottish nobles. I'm thinking uh, the Marquis of Hamilton. Okay. Because Hamilton is is an interesting counterpart to Buckingham in that James kept his English and Scottish administration separate because they were Mm -hmm. two separate countries at this point, but with almost no crossover, except that he appointed Buckingham to the Scottish Privy Council and he appointed Hamilton to the English one. So those two guys are like the only real crossover between those two spheres. So I think he'd be an interesting character too. And yeah, that's, that's what I got. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that sounds great. With that, I think we can do the estimatio or rating, where we rate this audio drama on a scale from one to five based on uh, any purely subjective criteria we would like. <laughs> so in terms of like enjoyment, I think I had sort of settled on a four I am, I think, going to knock it down to a 3.5 in part just because I find it a little annoying that he's like, Dumas doesn't care about history. And then it's like, now we're going to have a different historically inaccurate story. Um, (laughs) And I sort of find that annoying on principle that they like drew attention to it. And then I'm like, this isn't better. You just instead Mm -hmm. of Richelieu being the cartoon villain, now like Buckingham is the cartoon villain. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Which like, Maybe nobody has to be the cartoon villain, except for Philip IV. Um, <laughs> yes. I mean, it, it, that's Philip's fault. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But like, also, that's, that's on him. All of your Fabula Nostra about Philip IV of France was throwing me off because at this point in time, the king of Spain is a Philip IV. Yeah, it's rough. It's rough in, uh-huh. the, in, the, in European uh-huh. monarchies. Yeah. So, so like every time you were saying Philip IV, I'm like, oh, so we're talking about the Span? No. No, this is the this is that guy. <laughs> French Philip the Fourth. But yeah, so I think ultimately I am knocking it down to a 3.5, but I I did have fun with it. And I think this was a cool way of like gesturing to, well, not precisely adapting the three musketeers. And I think it is cool to I, I think that's a cool idea. And I'd actually love to see more stories that do things like that yes and like we I'm going... need to do this for the like 75th time but mm-hmm. we can do something that sort of is like reminiscent of it anyway gone sure i'm giving it a five out of five i loved it <laughs> okay um i i just i just had a good time like uh this is this is one of those tardis teams that like i really enjoy i like like, I think this gives uh, both Perry and Aramem, like, a real chance to shine. Um, I would give the TARDIS team a five out of five. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, uh, so, yeah, because Perry has, Perry herself has the sort of ignominious uh, distinction of being the companion for most of, like, the period in the mid-80s when the writing was shit which really is one of the worst periods of the show, but like Perry herself has a chance to be a good companion in this one. Mm -hmm. Like, um, so I appreciate it for that. Um, I like that it depicts Richelieu as more than just Tim Curry cartoon villain. Not that, not that Tim Curry as the cartoon villain is bad because, because Tim Curry is phenomenal, but like, 
It's a phenomenal of, performance. So it's a phenomenal performance of depiction of right, Hitler. Right. Like I can't stay mad at Tim Curry for anything. Um, fair, fair. He's he does villains so well. Yeah. He also does the occasional like hero well, like uh, Wadsworth in Clue the movie. Uh, at least Tim Curry at, does. He does well, right? Like, has, has there ever been yeah. a bad Tim Curry performance? I've not seen a bad. Tim I can't. Curry I can't think of any. Um, yeah. But anyway, uh, so I, I enjoyed Rachel. I just enjoyed. Everything about it, like, I mean, yes, it's it's not the most historically accurate pr- presentation of Buckingham in particular, but you know, it's it's fun, it's swashbuckling, um, it's it's a good time, is what it yeah. is. Yeah, um, I I will say, I definitely I definitely recommend I definitely recommend giving it a listen. Yeah, I just have the mean historian version of the reading. <laughs> yes, so. Well, Lily, thank you so much for uh, coming back to talk Doctor Who with me. Um, Anytime. Of course. Always happy to have you. Where can the listeners find you on the internet? I'm most active these days on Tumblr. My Tumblr is Shadow Academic. I'm also active in the Media Evil Facebook group. You can sometimes see me in there, but otherwise I... I'm at work and don't have time to interact with the wider world. <laughs> Fair enough. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please join the aforementioned Media Evil Facebook group. Follow the podcast on Twitter at Media Evil Pod. Uh, please also subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app if you have not already done so. And rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, these reviews really help, and I will read new five-star reviews in future episodes. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah Etchdecker. If you have any questions or suggestions, I'd love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. So Lily, thank you again. Anytime. It's good to be here. Thank you. And thank you all for listening to Media Evil. Bye. Bye.